Today is Thursday, January 15th, 2015, and this is an interview with Victims of Internal Decay guitarist Terry Guile by Nick Perkel. Can you tell me about your history in the Oregon music as well as comedy scenes? Okay, well, um, my history actually started with this band uh, back in the day. Uh, we were actually called a uh, different acronym for Void, which was the Violent Order of Idiotic Dudes. Uh, we were more uh, hardcore kind of punk rock stuff, but we kind of evolved into a death metal slash grindcore band. And uh, so I played with them. I think I started with those guys in 1990. And over the last 20, 25 years, I've been in bands from country to alternative to rock, uh, just whatever I can do. So uh been kind of infused in the local scene over the years in several bands. Uh, and the comedy thing just kind of started about four years ago. And uh, so I still consider myself really new to that. But uh, I think uh, the main reason I like it is as we've gotten older, us musicians in the band here, it's hard for us to all get together in the same room on the same day, you know, for practice and whatnot. And uh, mm -hmm. so as a comedian, I can just kind of, I don't have to check with anybody to book shows. I don't really, you know, I don't have to haul gear. I'm not getting any younger. So, uh, but yeah, I still love playing the music. It just doesn't happen as much. So, uh, <clears throat> How often do you use like a few lines from your comedy routines into like stage banner for your concerts when you're with your band? You know, that's kind of, that's, I was thinking about that and it's kind of funny because not very often, it hadn't really happened very often, but uh, a few months back we played up in Portland at the uh, Sickness in September Fest and uh, right on the song before last, our other guitarist, Robert, broke a string and he'd forgot to bring his uh, guitar in from the van. So he just bailed off the stage without telling us, you know, to go get to the guitar really quick, you know, and, and I kind of figured it out. He told the drummer, broke a string, so he bails. Turns out the, guitar, the van was down the street a little ways, so it took him longer than you would expect. So I kind of, I did bust into a few jokes. There was a guy in the parking lot of the Tonic Lounge who had recognized me as for doing comedy in, in the Portland area, and so he was trying out some of his jokes on me. And so I just used some of that guy's jokes, which were some silly knock, uh, not knock-knock jokes. They were... Uh, uh, how many uh, metalheads does it take to screw in a light bulb? Those type of jokes. And uh, so I told that. And of course, the answer is none, because we like it dark. But uh, they were totally corny jokes. But uh, that's about the only time that they've ever. And, you know, uh, I don't really I talk about being a metalhead in my comedy act and stuff like that. But I don't really talk about playing in bands. And I don't really do any of my like actual material from my comedy when I'm doing uh, the music show. So it doesn't really doesn't really cross over that much. I mean, it's funny that you asked because the last show we did, I did have to tell a couple jokes as we waited for our guitars to jog down the street to get his backup guitar, but that was kind of funny. Okay, cool. Now, getting into the music stuff now, can you tell me what like the studio setup was like for the recording of Victims of Internal Decay? And were things done with like the two inch tape or with like sound tools? You know, um, it was it's funny you mentioned sound tools. I was just watching a, a movie that was mentioning that from like the same time frame when we recorded back in the early 90s. And I'd never heard of sound tools back then. But no, he recorded on a two inch tape and it was at a studio out in Newburgh called Dogfish. And this guy had worked with uh, people like Neil Young. Uh, he recorded the Nirvana live set for the B-sides for their singles off of Nevermind. See, they had a mobile truck, so they had a great big live room, a great, great big live room, which was awesome because it just had a great sound, and they had a couple vocal booths. And then 
all of the, the board and everything was outside in a mobile truck. So they would use that truck to record all kinds of uh, concerts and stuff of uh, fairly big people and uh, other bands that were death metal at the time from the Portland area, like Body Bag, actually recorded up there at Dogfish. So it was it was a great experience uh, working with someone who had, and he had never really done any death metal. He'd worked with a he recorded the first Soundgarden album. This Drew Canulet was his name, and uh, it was an odd mix. We got hooked up with him, and he had never really done death metal, and it was kind of nice to have a fresh pair of ears. You know, he didn't really know what he was going for, so he just kind of did what we told him. So it was it was a great experience. It was one of my all-time favorite studio experiences, I think, of all time. What part of the recording process was your most as well as least favorite to get through, and why is that? Um, I, you know, sometimes tracking can be tedious when, you know, the music is a little bit, uh, technically difficult, you know, to perform perfectly. And back then you didn't have pro tools. I mean, you could still punch in with a guitar, like if you made a mistake, but for the most part, we were doing them in full takes. And, uh, I, that's the hardest. You'd like to play it perfect every time, but when you're under a microscope like that and you're wanting to get the best recording because you're spending a lot of money. Um, that was probably my least favorite, but, uh, the, the most favorite, what's right here. Uh, I think my least favorite part of the recording part process was having to, uh, try to get everything perfect. And, you know, and it, with the older equipment tools, uh, take into a different spot. So, uh, you know, getting underneath the microscope and stuff like that's the least favorite, but I'd say my favorite part was uh, during the mix down and stuff like that because uh, at that time, the equipment, they had like an automated mixing board where you would go and program everything in and then just let it go. And it was kind of like ghost knobs. You know, you got a big wide board with all the mixers like you see in the big studios. And when a part came where like the lead guitar needed to be brought down or the vocals needed to be brought up, um, would just move by themselves. It was kind of like, ooh, it's possessed by the devil or whatever. But no, it was kind of cool to see this uh, state of the art. And they did, they cut tape uh, as far as the uh, actual cutting of the tape and taping it back together with the two-inch tape. And there's a song on there, I believe it's on Sterile Nature, where he uh, took an echo that he had done on a vocal track and he took the tape and he flipped it upside down and did one of those magic tricks where they, they do in, in actual editing and made the echo be a reverse decay to where it echoes before the the word comes out. I don't even know how he did it. It was one of those things where we're watching this guy do his magic in the studio and then he plays the playback for us. And we're like, oh my God, that is so awesome you know so uh he was a great producer he he added things he, he gave us ideas as producers should i think you know like maybe you should do this on this part you know he didn't try to manipulate our music or or make us you know be anything that we weren't but uh he just had a lot of good ideas and a lot of good techniques and to watch a master work like that was pretty cool back back in the day when there wasn't all the new technology that they have these days so it was a great experience what three songs from the writing of your self-titled album with victims of internal decay, do you look back on most fondly? Oh man, three songs off that album. Let's see, they—they all probably hold a, a special part in my heart because that that album was our, our swan song, I believe. But uh, we've never really sat down and counted riffs and songs. But I bet it's probably got close to twenty riffs. It's—it's it's one of those ones that's all over the place, and it—it it took us a really long time to perfect it and get all the parts down. So it was like a labor of love 
that song and uh, also Bleed, which is Wait, uh, uh, go ahead. What song before Bleed? Did you say? Uh, I said Sterile Nature, which is the last okay. track, the last track on the album, and then Bleed sticks out to me too because in our in our writing and rehearsal sessions for that album. That was one of the first songs. Okay, we got the music down, we presented it to our singer, and he came in with these lyrics, and he sang in a voice uh, reminiscent of maybe John Tardy, of obituary, you know, the voice that he basically grew into that we'd never heard him sing in his death metal voice. He had more of a high-pitched, kind of a barky, uh, like DRI type of a hardcore vocal style that he did. And we've been listening to like obituary and different death metal bands at the time. And uh, he came in and, and did this, this low guttural. And we were just like, <laughs> excuse the phrase, but we were all jaws on the floor. Just, Oh my God, dude, you're doing that from now on. And that's kind of the day that we became a full on death metal band. We're like, no more of that hardcore barking stuff. We're going to go, you know, so uh, that song definitely held a special uh, place uh, and a fond memory for me because that's kind of when we went into the next phase of the band. And then the, I guess the third song would probably one most people wouldn't think, but it's the last song on the side one. If you're listening on a cassette or uh, it's a Jim's lament. And it's just a weird little about two minute thing where we played this really dissident guitar part and we had some narrative going in the background and we all sat in the big live room and we had cowbells and hand drums. And it was just, it's just a thing that we, we got really stoned and we sat there and we were like, all right, we're going to make this song that we've never, you know, we just wrote it in the studio. Cause we've always tried to do that at least with one song, you know, we're going to write a song in the studio, whether it's a three second song, this is like a little hardcore grindcore blast or something. Or so Jim's lament, definitely pretty cool because uh, my, my dad's name is Jim. So it's kind of, named after my father so uh, i'd have to say those three would be the ones that uh, stick out the most to me do you have any plans to ever do another domesticide or grief hammer show or maybe release another recording with either group you know the drummer the drummer from victims from back in the day who's not in the band anymore because he kind of he just he just uh retired from music so to speak he doesn't do it anymore unfortunately because he's a super talented dude uh he was also the drummer from domesticide and we've we've tried and tried we've joked about having a domesticide reunion in 2016 and that was back in 2012 so you never know i mean uh the the guitarist from arachnid who will also be at famine fest uh phil he's the new guitarist for that band he was in Domesticide for the last few months. So we're connected in that way. We were also in a game over together, but uh, he's all down for it. And the drummer who's drumming for victims right now is down for it, um, loves Domesticide. So, you know, I would never say never with Domesticide because uh, that was kind of my baby. Victims was more of a, a team effort and Domesticide was too, but Domesticide was kind of launched by me. It was kind of like my project that turned into a full on band where everybody put in their their two cents, but uh, it was just I don't know seemed a little more special and personal to me, and to see that band come back would be awesome. Um, Grief Hammer, not too sure. Uh, we're we're working on a trying to at least get that revived at some point, or maybe start a different Doom type band because uh, Doom really holds a special place in my heart as well for that slower, really down tuned Doom metal. So. Uh, like I said, for the other band, never say never. I would love to see either one of those bands come back. Um, I'd say Domesticide probably has a little more chance, but it'd probably be a year or so down the line. So, 
for the Famine Fest, what type of set list do you think fans should expect to hear? Okay, well, uh, we we only got 30 minutes because there's tons of bands, and that's that's awesome. We don't mind uh, as as we get older. We don't mind playing the 30 minute set because uh, it's pretty intense music. But uh, we'll be doing a number of songs from the self-titled release that we were just talking about, uh, which is, I don't know if you mentioned it or not, or if you plan to, has been recently re-released on cassette through Headsplit Records. And uh, so we're going to be doing a bunch of songs off that, and we're going to do a couple songs off of uh, our last release, which was from 96, called Resin 67, which is and not available. But uh, yeah, we're not really going back to our old school roots. We do have a few old school fans who uh, suggest a couple tunes from back in the old violent of or violent order of idiotic dudes days, but uh, maybe someday. But for this uh, for this one, we're going to do basically from our last two releases. Oh, I think we might stick in uh, our unreleased song that ended up on an i5 Pillars compilation that came out, I think, in like ninety three or ninety four, which like we were the only metal band on there. It had bands like uh, Cherry Pop and Daddies and weird different stuff like that. Uh, I think yeah. Dead, Moon, Dead Moon was on there as well. So I think we're going to whip out that song, which didn't make it onto the release, but it was recorded in the same sessions as the self-titled CD. So yeah, it should be good. I'm gonna, I'm really looking forward to it. Now, what type of merch should fans of yours be on the lookout for at the Famine Fest? Yeah, I was kind of bummed. I, I saw that question. Not It's a great question, but unfortunately, we haven't played a lot of shows lately and we've kind of recently reformed within the last year. And, uh, we don't, we might have a shirt or two that have been laying around in a box somewhere, but as far as new merch, we don't have anything. I know, uh, Lance, the singer has a, a big stack of stickers that he's probably just going to be giving away for free. So, uh, they can pick up a sticker to slap on their bumper or on their guitar case or whatever. But we're going to try to, uh, you know, there probably might be some cassettes there for sale. I would imagine because, uh, you know, Chris is putting on the show, and Dylan's going to be there as well. So uh, hopefully they'll have some cassettes there. I don't know if we'll be selling them or if Head Split Records will be selling them, but uh, we'll have some sneakers, though. <laughs> what would be some classic memorabilia of victims that you would really be impressed with if a fan brought it to the Famine Fest show to get <laughs> autographed? That's a good, that's a good question because uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, we recently... I got a friend who does some stuff for us online and some different things. I used to do a podcast with him. We still do it once in a while, but not regularly. And uh, he recently re-released our, um, this is going to sound funny if you've never heard of it. He recently re-released our coloring, our victims of internal decay coloring and activity book, which was hand drawn by our singer, Lance Phil back in the early nineties. <laughs> he just took a bunch of blank pieces of paper and he photocopied them and stapled them together and used to sell them at shows. And they had like dot to dot. Wait, it dude. was just corny as hell. So a lot of people, these were kind of coveted and some people even have the original copies. Well, nowadays you can publish your own book on Amazon anytime, you know, as long as you, you know, put it on there. So, um, people have been buying them. I actually, this was pretty awesome to me. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, the group Yob. They're a, a Oregon based doom metal band and a real big fan of those guys. And their drummer has always told us that he was a big fan of us and that we were why he got into music. So it's just like this mutual admiration that we have for each other. Well, apparently he ordered one. He sent me a picture on, on, uh, I think it was a text message to my phone of him holding his, uh, void coloring and activity book that he ordered off of. Uh, and so the guy who re-released it, he actually used the first demos, uh, 
demo cover for the back cover of the book. So it's a real kind of cool piece of memorabilia. Uh, I think we've only sold like six or seven because you can keep track of, you know, how many they sell on Amazon. But someone's been buying them. So if they bring those down there, I, I would definitely sign it. But if they brought one of the originals, I'd, I'd really be impressed. I, I was talking to my wife about that question. and She said, well, there was a, an old story of us playing in Albany one one time, and we were always staunch advocates of uh, for legalization of marijuana. And uh, we finally got our way 20 years later. Yay. But uh, anyway, so uh, one time, everyone was kind of sitting in their seats, and it was at a theater, and there was a big area between the seats and the stage where you could get up and mosh and stuff. And no one was getting up. And I was like, you know, you guys could at least get up here and stand up here and pretend like you like us. And I had this Tupperware. <laughs> I had a Tupperware full of joints. <laughs> and weed was totally illegal at the time. I threw this Tupperware full of joints. I was like, I'm just throwing handfuls of joints into the audience. They all run up there, start picking up the joints. Of course, they stand up there and act like they like us then. But uh, most people lit up the joints, which uh, nearly got us kicked out of the venue because you weren't even supposed to smoke cigarettes in there because it was a <laughs> it was a nice theater. But uh, yeah. my wife said, what if somebody brought one of those joints to the show to have you sign? And I was like, damn, that would be the most impressive if someone had kept a joint for 23 years and then brought it to us to sign later. But uh, I doubt, I really doubt that's going to be happening. <laughs> Pretty much last question here. What kind right. of advice would you give to bands who are financially able and interested in recording to tape? When you say recording to tape, do you mean like uh, foregoing the digital era and just recording? You mean old school or like? Making... Yeah, yeah, old school, like the two-inch tape. You know, there aren't a lot of those studios, and it is a little bit more expensive, and it takes a little more time. But it's like you said, if you have the money and the opportunity to do that, I would definitely recommend it. I don't know how many studios there are in the Portland area that, that still actually do that. It was recently, I mentioned earlier that I was watching a, a show. It was that Sound City uh, by Dave Grohl about the, how the digital age came in and drove out all the, you know, the old school reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape studios. And, you know, there's nothing like it. And there's nothing like, I mean, Anybody can get on a laptop these days and program a drum machine and come up with a necrophagist. I mean, not anybody. you got to be good. But, you know, you don't even have to have a band. You can do it all yourself. But the beauty of getting four or five guys in a room and writing a song and, like, looking at each other and playing and then learning it and being – there's nothing like that. So recording on tape, if you can afford it and you have the time and the determination to uh, forego all the – ease of technology these days i would definitely recommend it because uh it's an experience and, and the, the end result is always much better a lot of people don't a lot of the younger generation they're like oh digital's awesome it lasts forever but it's just missing something and there's no way to explain what it's missing <laughs> except with your ears you know so i definitely recommend going old school for sure anything you want to add on that um, not, uh, just want to plug, uh, head split records for putting on the famine fest and, uh, re-releasing our, our tape, which is kind of awesome. I have another friend in Eugene who's starting up a tape label, which I guess is making a little bit of resurgence, which is awesome. Um, other than that, no, I, I appreciate the support and I appreciate the fact that you uh, wanted to do this interview and I appreciate all the people who have, uh, said they were going to the famine fest. I have a hard time believing that, uh, 470 people are going to be there, but it's a two-day show. You never know. I mean, they posted pictures from last year, and it was packed out. So uh, it's going to be a good time, and I'm super excited to see all the other bands. And, uh, yeah, that's all. That's pretty much all I got to say is it's going to be 
a great show. Would you like to go back to any questions? Uh, no, that uh, covers everything. Uh, you, I think you did a great job in your question selection. Made me think a little bit. Cool, so man. yeah, I so, hope you hope it was uh, satisfactory to what you wanted. Definitely, man. Final words. Uh, metal. That's my final word. Is metal, and hope to see everybody out there at Famine Fest, and appreciate the support. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys out there. Thanks a lot. This has been an interview with victims of internal decay guitarist Terry Guile by Nick Perkel.